0: Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, many of you know that our theme for the year has been M3, make, mature, multiply. And uh, we've been kind of capturing stories of people that have exemplified that over the years. Uh, I know that that is many of you, but we have just the privilege of sharing a couple of those stories. And uh, I think Caden is such a unique example. Caden is a guy that I met. Where is Caden right now? Sorry. Yeah. Oh, he's in the bag. There we go. Uh, so, Caden came to the Oaks as a freshman. Uh, started going to one of our missional community groups, and I think since he began at the Oaks, he has now led three missional communities and multiplied two of them. Right? Uh, so, so we we love just the opportunity to uh, see the way that God is using you, um, and and to say. Lord, how can we be a good steward of uh, what you've entrusted to us? And I know that is the story of so many of you. One of the questions that we as elders at the Oaks love to answer that maybe you're wrestling with is what is my next step? Uh, What is my next step? What could God be calling me to? uh, Just so we don't put you where we need you, but where you need to be so that you can best use your gifts for the kingdom of God. And uh, we've been able to do that so many times here at the Oaks and we're excited about uh, the future and just knowing uh, the way that God has gifted you and entrusted you to our church to be faithful with this mission of Jesus to make and multiply disciples. Now, with that being said, uh, we're going to continue our study through the book of Titus. We're actually going to finish chapter one of Titus this morning. So last week, we looked at the positive attributes and, uh, you know, what should not be said of a godly leader. So we looked at what a godly leader is who teaches the truth. And then today is kind of the flip side of that coin. Uh, So what should we be aware of whenever it comes to false doctrines that are taught? Um, what, What things, what controversies should you seek to avoid? Ultimately, not just so that you believe the right things, but so that you trust the God who is the truth, who is truthful. And so we're gonna look, look at that a little bit today. Now, as I was working through this sermon this week, I was reminded of uh, something that took place whenever I was about 10 years old. And I'm not sure if I've even thought about this story since I was like in elementary school, but uh, you know, I was going to a fairly small church growing up and uh, I had gone to see a movie with some kids that were older than me, they were like in middle school. So I was just like glad to be included. And among us was the youth pastor at our church. So we go to see this movie. I don't remember anything about the movie that we saw, but I do remember what happened right after the credits of the movie played. Uh, You know, here I was just trying to fit in and the youth pastor leaned over and he said, do you guys want to see another movie? And, you know, I didn't have any plans and didn't drive. So I was just kind of like, sure, that sounds good. Uh, If everybody else is doing it, then all right. Now, what I didn't know is that there is something called a double feature. Do you know what that is? It's, it's whenever you just kind of sneak out of one movie, and then you sneak into another like movie that's you know about to start or already going, and you don't pay for it. You don't go out into the lobby and buy another ticket or anything like that. You just sneak in, and it's called, it's called a double feature. Now, raise your hand if you... No, I'm just kidding. But... <laughs> But, I was, but then I was like, well, I don't want to be the stick in the mud here. And, uh, and so we, we go and see this other movie, and I have no idea what it was. But I was like, well, the, the youth pastor said that, like, it was fine, so I guess it's okay. And so, so we do that. Well, by the time I get home, like the guilt is crippling. I just, I looked guilty. I'd been gone too long. My parents could tell how red my face was. And it was just like, just came like blurting out, we saw two movies. I only paid for one, you know? And they were like, <laughs> like, so yes, yeah, so they were like, Extremely disappointed in me. They were like Terry Lee, you should have known better. Even if you were the only one, you should have walked out. And I was like, man, I could have really had my like Daniel moment, you know? Like I'm doing this. It doesn't matter what you guys say, but I didn't do that, okay? Uh, but now I can use this as a sermon illustration. So here we are, uh, Romans 8:28. Uh, so, <laughs> so here we are, and and my parents were like, I can't believe you did that. But he, but even more so, I I can't believe that this guy that we've entrusted your spiritual care and discipleship to did that. And, uh, and it wasn't long before there were other concerns of character that came out in uh, this individual's life. And, and ultimately, uh, sadly, he ended up leaving the church. Not only did he leave the church, he left any resemblance of a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, la- last time I you know, kind of saw where his life was, he was like, he was DJing a uh, radio show that was like far from family friendly. And so whenever I, whenever I look at his life, I, I pray that the Lord would have mercy But I I think it's also just kind of reason to pause and say, it is possible to be someone who says, I I believe the Bible. It's possible to be someone who is recognized in the church. It's possible to be on, on staff, like whatever labels you want to use to say, oh, that is a mark of spiritual maturity. That is a mark of spiritual health. That is a mark of someone who should not only be considered one who's following the Lord, but worthy of leading others. I think it brings caution for us to say, those, those things can be true, and yet for that person to not be someone who seems to have a genuine relationship with Christ, who is fit to teach truth, or even seems to hold it near himself. And the question that then rose to my mind is, is this story surprising? Does this story surprise you that I just told? Maybe not, probably not, honestly, which is sad. And the reality is, this story would not have surprised the Apostle Paul either. Because whenever he is writing to Titus, who's doing ministry on the island of Crete, after Paul had had spent some time there as a missionary with Titus, he he moved on. He said, now, Titus, you're going to have to put things into order. You're going to have to raise up godly leaders who teach the truth, but not only teach the truth, but refute false doctrine." Because there are already many among you who are teaching lies and claiming its truth. They're heaping up burdens and saying, this is what it means to be right with God. And yet those burdens hold no biblical weight. Uh, they're, they're trying to appeal to the itching ears of their hearers without any disregard for the holiness of God in the scripture that he has given. With that little bit of background, let's look at verses 10 through 16 as a picture of those that are to be rebuked, those who are teaching false error, and ultimately point to the truth that God has given us in His Word. Verse 10 says, "'For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. My my charge to you as we look at this passage is simple, and it is this. Hold fast to the truth and avoid false doctrine. Hold fast to the truth found in Scripture and avoid false doctrine. We read here that many claimed to be followers of Christ. Many claimed to be teachers of God's word. We we see that right there in verse 10. And yet, how are they described as insubordinate? They won't submit to God's word. They're empty talkers. What they're saying sounds eloquent and yet holds no weight. They're deceivers. They say things that are simply not true. In verse 10, we're told that they should be silenced. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families, and the motive of their teaching is shameful gain. They're trying to uh, extract money from the people that they were teaching. They're twisting their doctrine to take advantage of others. What we find in verse 14, that they devoted themselves to Jewish myths, to the commands of people. They were turning away from the truth. And finally, in verse 16, we see that they are detestable, They're disobedient, and they're unfit for any good work. We find that even in a a teacher, there is this relationship between belief and practice, between orthodoxy, right doctrine, and orthopraxy, right practice. And we'll see that this morning. Now, what I want to do briefly is walk through verses 10 through 16, make some observations, and then we're going to look at three facts by by way of application toward the end of the sermon, just so we know where we're going. Now, I know that kind of structure can make the note taker in the room say, what do I do for the first half of the sermon? And so let me help you. Uh, you can just kind of write verse 10 and then any kind of, you know, words that you want to jot down in that. So we're going to look at the word many. Why? Because there were many who Were false teachers in that time. So you might want to just put like many in quotes and then write some notes by it. Good to go? Awesome. Now, as we get to verse 10, the threat of the church becomes obvious. Uh, We would almost assume that as Paul is going to write this letter to Titus, he's gonna say, Hey, there are there are a lot of people who are on the island of Crete who worship the God of Asclepius or worship the God of Zeus. And so you need to stay away from the pagan temples. Uh, You need to make sure that uh, you're not falling into the idolatrous practices. Now, certainly the, you know, just kind of rampant cultural sin was a threat to the church. And yet Paul is going to warn Titus and those who would read this letter, that the greatest threat to the church were actually those that claimed to be Christian teachers inside of it. Think about this for a moment. This is like going to great lengths to secure your front door with deadbolts and latches and locks to protect from thieves and criminals that might try to enter your home, but unknowingly letting a gas leak spread in the basement to where if a single match was lit, your whole home would explode. Paul, Paul is saying it is that kind of level of seriousness in which I am writing to you. Because it's not like there's just a couple here and there. No, he says that there are many in verse 10 who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, here I want to dive into context for just a little bit because uh, he labels most of the people in this group, he says especially those of the circumcision party, he labels them as the circumcision party. And this is not the only place that we see them in Scripture. Uh, We find them in Galatians 2 as well. Now, You could probably tell from the name that what they taught was that someone not only had to believe in the gospel, trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, it was not only trusting Jesus, but then they had to kind of follow the covenant rite of Judaism, which was circumcision. And then they needed to follow the other things. Like in verse 14, we'll see that there were these Jewish myths that they added. And they were like, you must also do these. You must keep these dietary restrictions. You must observe these holidays. You can't walk too far on the Sabbath day. All of these things, they were saying, it's a Jesus plus kind of religion that makes you righteous before God. Now, here's the interesting thing. These guys would not have only brought false teaching into the church they would have particularly had a target on Titus. Now, why is that? Well, Galatians 2, 3, Paul writes, Titus, who is with me, he's talking to the church in Galatia, he says he was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, Timothy, we know had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. And so whenever Paul is uh, you know, advising Timothy as to what to do, he says, D- so that you're not a stumbling block, you need to be circumcised. It's right that Timothy is circumcised so that he's not a stumbling block. But whenever he speaks to Titus, he says, you have two Greek parents. Uh, there is nothing that would make you a stumbling block. You are completely uh, right with God based upon the gospel. So you don't have to observe this covenant right of Judaism. Well, So these false teachers... If, if they are aware of that, which it seems from the text that they were, they would have particularly tried to undermine, undermine the legitimacy of Titus' leadership in the church. And what we find is that their error of doctrine is actually going to provide an opportunity for Paul to reiterate the complete sufficiency of Christ and the comprehensive nature of the gospel to save now, we see that, just kind of doing some cross-referencing here, apparently, uh, this circumcision party, probably not the same guys, but just kind of the same ideology, uh, they also had a presence in the city of Antioch, another place where, uh, you know, there were a lot of Christians and there was ministry happening. And it's interesting to read what Paul says in Galatians 2, because he's going to say that these guys were so intimidating, this, this group, the circumcision party, they were so intimidating that even the apostle Peter caved under the peer pressure of them being around. Now, we could read Galatians 2 and think like, wow, like you put that in the Bible, Paul? Well, I, God put it in the Bible, right? But we're like, is Paul like kind of like spilling the tea here with Peter? Uh, no, I think, I think what he is doing here is saying if the apostle Peter could, could fall prey to the peer pressure of false doctrine, if the apostle Peter who walked with Jesus could could believe one thing in his head and in his heart and then, and then in the moment choose the wrong thing, then we're probably susceptible to. So we should really be really dependent upon the Lord and hold firm to the truth. The story goes like this, Galatians 2, 11 through 14. When Cephas, that was another name for Peter, came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So he was, he was having dinner with the Gentiles, something uh, that the circumcision party would say a Jew should never eat with a Gentile. But he was eating with them before before, before certain men came from James. But when they came, verse 12, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that is Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, you're saying, hey, I'm I'm now free from these religious requirements because of the gospel. He says, if you a Jew, live like a Gentile now, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, Peter knew that from from even spending time with Jesus, that this purity was a matter of the heart. It was not about keeping these outward religious rules that had been added by man. And, And Peter falls prey to this hypocritical action, that he begins to believe the legalism, that you have to uh, keep man-made parts of the law to be right with God. And if Peter can fall prey to that kind of peer pressure, we can too. Well, we find here in Titus one that apparently that poison has seeped into the island of Crete, into the doctrine that was being taught. And yet what do we know? That the essence of the gospel message is that we are made right with God, not by the religious work of of our hands, but the finished work of Christ. And to show that this wasn't just Paul's take on the situation, I I think it's important for us to consider even what took place in Acts 15. So if you've been going through uh, the New Testament portion of our Bible reading plan, you just read Acts 15, uh, where we see that this is kind of a debate. You know, well, should Christians be circumcised or should they not? Like what parts of, you know, uh, the Old Testament should be applied to the Christian. Well, all of the apostles get together, they begin talking about this, they hold this council, and and they say, the gospel is sufficient, Christ is sufficient. Someone uh, does not have to be circumcised in order to be justified before God. Uh, To prove that, that there was evidence, uh, they said, look at the way that all of the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit whenever they believe in the gospel, just like we do. This is not a matter of external conformity to some kind of rigid code. It is about an internal transformation that is birthed out of a relationship with Christ through repentance of sin and faith in Him alone. Now, Paul speaks more to this in Romans two twenty-eight through 29. And I think this is so essential because while we're talking about uh, this kind of debate that is taking place between this group of people in Titus chapter one, I want you to understand that the principle here is worked out every single day in your life. Is your relationship with God, is your right standing with God based ultimately upon what you do every single day or what Christ did applied to your life every single day? Well, Paul in Romans two twenty-eight through 29 speaks specifically about the heart, saying, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Now, that would be a perplexing statement for someone who, who would say, no, if, if you're not circumcised, you are not someone who is being obedient to God. Well, what does he say? Being a Jew, being, being a person who belongs to God is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter ultimately of the heart by the spirit. So your heart is circumcised, made new by the Holy Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And you're like, whoa, what is this New Testament teaching that Paul is coming up with here? Well, the interesting thing is that he is actually quoting from Deuteronomy 36. That this same language, that the heart would be made new, comes from Deuteronomy 36. So, what is the overarching principle here? That, yes, our actions matter, but they are a response to a relationship with God that has already taken place in our hearts. Our actions matter, but the motivation of the heart behind them matters even more. Uh, Something as simple as baptism proves this, right? Right? We're not baptized so that we can be made right with God. Baptism is a public declaration that we now have a relationship with God, that we have died with Him to our sins, and that we have been raised again in His resurrection. So, so here we see that they're kind of heaping on these religious traditions to be right with God. And what is Paul going to say? Well, he's very clear in verse 11. He says, They must be silenced they must be silenced. Uh, The word here could almost be translated muzzled. He is like a shepherd who represents the good shepherd who is Christ, and he is protecting the flock of God from ravenous wolves. He says they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by the teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, the the word that is used there for whole families, uh, we could also interpret that as households. And that's unique because, as I said before, there could have been up to like a dozen churches throughout the island of Crete at this point. This was not just written to one church on the island of Crete, but written to Titus to then lead many churches and establish elders in all of those churches. Uh, so the word that is translated families there could actually be households, and it could be representative of all of these churches that were meeting in houses. Um, either way, I don't, I don't think uh, you know, saying it's one or the other necessarily changes the interpretation of this passage. I do think it shows the, the weight of what was taking place here, that by false teaching, be it families or churches, a lot of people were being led astray and taking advantage of. Go on to verse 12, and Paul is going to quote, a Cretan poet and philosopher, uh, a guy named Epimenides. And he wrote about 700 years before this was written. And he makes a, uh, a kind of a cultural profile of the average Cretan. And he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, he's saying, I'm not making this accusation. Right? One of the guys that was from there, he said this. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, that's kind of a harsh critique, and yet it, it seems that most people that were in Crete at that time would have been like, yeah, that's, that's about right. That kind of that checks out, you know? It, it's, it's interesting to see Paul, uh, quote... This man, And, and some people have, have gotten upset at this. They're like, well, why would Paul give the weight of scripture to this guy that was, you know, some pagan philosopher of that time? Well, what is Paul doing? Paul's being a really good missionary, right? He's making a connection with their culture so that he can draw, draw them in. And ultimately, he's going to show sin in its form so that he can point to the gospel. And, and so as he, as he says, hey, these are the things that characterize your culture, uh, the, the, the Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, is actually going to set him up to point to Christ. Now, one more thing that's, that's worthy of noting here is that, uh, you know, Crete was the alleged birthplace of the mythological god Zeus. Well, what was, what was Zeus known for? For being a deceiver, a liar, for being, being this, you know, false god that just kind of indulged his own desires at anyone else's expense, and, and what we find in the island of Crete that I think applies everywhere is that whatever you behold as good is what you become. Whatever you behold as ultimately good and right, you begin to take on those characters and traits. And we see that play out in Crete. Now, the critique that Paul levels here is ultimately against the false teachers because he's gonna say, well, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true, but it is true of those who claim to be Christian teachers in this culture. He is calling out this threat from the Judaizers, from uh, the circumcision party, from those who are heaping up walls upon God's people that will ultimately burden them, exhaust them, and lead them to look away from Jesus. these are some of the false doctrines in their time. I I think right now, uh, just quickly by way of application, we should consider some of the false doctrines uh, that can enter into the church today. Some of these dangerous doctrines, just to look at kind of a general sense, would be legalism. Well, what is legalism? It is any time someone adds to the gospel for salvation or any time someone adds to the gospel to maintain your relationship with God. So this can be things like Jesus plus attending mass every week, Jesus plus getting baptized, Jesus plus becoming a church member, Jesus plus becoming uh, being a member of a serve team. Now, we would say, hey, it's good to go to church every Sunday. It's great to be baptized if you're a follower of Jesus. We would love every person to be on a serve team. But those are not things that you do to earn God's favor, like it's some kind of law that you have to keep to be right with God. Those are responses to your relationship with God. Um, One form of this could even be something like the prosperity gospel, right? It treats God as a divine vending machine. It says, Lord, I'm going to do this, I'm going to give this, I'm going to pray this, and then you've got to give me this. That is ultimately a works-based way of thinking about God. Not only that, there is the dangerous doctrine of license, also known as antinomianism. And antinomianism is just a way to say anti-law. This ultimately abuses God's grace by saying, it doesn't matter how I live because God is a God of forgiveness. God is a God of love. So I can live however I want, and I know that he will ultimately be okay with it. Well, that completely ignores the fact that if you are a Christian, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And guess what the Holy Spirit's going to do? He's going to make you more holy. He's going to transform your desires. He is going to show you what we often say at the Oaks, that a train operates best on its tracks and the Christian life is best lived within the, the limits of God's commands because they're ultimately good for you. Um, one, of the, one of the debates in the 1980s about this was uh, something called Lordship Salvation. You know, some of you might be familiar with this. So there were teacher, people, people who were teaching, uh, you, can be, you can know Jesus as Savior, and then over time, as you become more mature, as you take your faith more seriously, then you can know Jesus as Lord. Well, the Lordship Salvation controversy was ultimately pointing to the fact that you can't separate that Christ is both Savior and Lord. And if you don't know him as Lord, then you ultimately don't know him as Savior. And so it eliminates this doctrine, this false doctrine of license. And then finally, syncretism. What is syncretism? Uh, we, could, we could talk about more, but I'm just trying to hit kind of the broad ones. This is assimilating um, unbiblical cultural views into your Christian faith and practice. and and just simply saying, well, uh, the way that the Bible commanded not to do these things or to do these things, uh, that was limited to their cultural context. These things are outdated now. We don't have to necessarily live like that anymore. Paul didn't know we would be dealing with these issues. And it's just kind of this blend of secular culture and Christianity that is ultimately not going to glorify God. Um, This can be something as, you know, uh, something like affirming same-sex marriage, or, you know, saying God is okay with homosexuality. It's something uh, like saying, you know, if, if someone feels uh, a certain way that they're not the gender that, you know, they're supposed to be, then biological sex doesn't matter, and they can just, you know, choose to be a man, a man or a woman. Now, what we want to say to that person is, we love you. We believe that the fall, sin has entered the world and destroyed all things, and one of the ways that we express love is by speaking a truth with gentleness and respect. We recognize that sin has distorted the way that all of us think and that God's plan is restoration. We can, we can look at things in our culture and point to the Lord who redeems without just saying, well, this is a hard truth, so we're just going to accept it and act like it doesn't really matter. Now, here's the, here's the bigger issue, I think, whenever it comes to syncretism. It's maybe not on some of those hot-button topics, right? Because I know that we all held our breath while, while I was even talking about it right now, right? Like, what's he going to say? Like, is this going to turn into a soundbite? Like, um, but I think the question for each of us in the room is, is my life shaped more by my commitment to Christ or the culture that I live in? Right, so, so whenever, whenever you're at work, or whenever the car in front of you immediately stops and you have to slam on brakes, what's the first word that comes out of your mouth? I mean, does that reflect your commitment to Christ or the culture you live in? Think about your view of dating, of marriage, of sexuality. Right? Would you say God has created sex as a gift that is limited to the context of husband and wife. And outside of those confines, it, it, is, it is not to be indulged through the things I look at or the way I act or the way that I treat someone who maybe I'm just engaged to or dating. Perhaps that's where we, we let this idea of syncretism creep in whenever we think about the way that we discipline our children, right? Whenever we think about the books we read or the things we watch, and, and I am in no way just trying to heap up like commands for the, for the sake of having commands. What I'm trying to do is just simply provide an opportunity to where the Holy Spirit can speak to you, to where you can assess some of these areas in your life. Why? Because I, I long for you to enjoy a life of abiding in Christ and walking in obedience to Him. And so we look at these dangerous doctrines and realize that they were just as present in Paul's day as they are in ours and vice versa. So what does Paul command Timothy to do? He says to rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, here we see the, the intended goal, right, it is to rebuke these false teachers. So we, we can't take the approach where it's like, oh, like, we don't want to be judgmental. We want to be non-confrontational. Uh, so whenever there is someone who's saying this is what God's word says or this is truth, and they are completely off base, we should rebuke them. But rebuke them in a way that ultimately leads to what goal? That they may be sound in the faith, verse 13 says. We're winsome in our rebuke. Uh, we go as a, a brother or a sister to the person who is teaching false doctrine, or if we hear some, that someone has fallen prey to false doctrine, that we seek to rebuke them with gentleness, respect, and kindness, confront them with the truth. Why? So that they ultimately may, may be turned to the truth and that they would be sound in faith. In, in verses 13 through Fourteen. we see the seriousness of uprooting these false teachers. And it reminds us of what Paul wrote at the very beginning of this letter. Why does he say that he is writing the book of Titus? Verse one, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Why is that? Because where there is a lack of knowledge, there is an abundance of spiritual confusion. Where there is a lack of knowledge of the truth, then there is an abundance of spiritual confusion. And so how do you you root out that spiritual confusion? How do you replace it with truth? Well, the prayer of Jesus in John 17, in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Sanctify them, sanctify my disciples in the truth because your word is truth. How do you prevent false doctrine from creeping into your heart? By filling your heart with the truth of God's word. And so let's, let's get just really practical here. Do you have a plan for reading God's word? It, is God's voice the loudest in your life? Uh, are, are you daily in scripture? Do you have a plan for that? Like what does Monday through Friday look like for this week? Maybe it's the Oaks reading plan. Maybe it's just saying, you know what? Uh, the book of Ephesians is six chapters. I want to read that this week. Or the, the book of 1 John, right? I want to read a chapter a day. Or I want to read three chapters this week and just kind of study it to to meditate on it, to write down one verse. Um, Whenever I talk about studying or meditating on scripture, uh, I often use something called the HEAR method. Now, whenever I say the HEAR method, this really is a crowd participation moment. Whenever I say that, who knows what I'm talking about? HEAR method? Okay, awesome. I was trying to decide if it was worth spending time on or not. Okay, so typically what I do is I use the acronym HEAR, which stands for highlight, explain, apply, respond. Right, so as you're spending time with the Lord this week, I would just say get out a journal and write here in capital letters at the very top. Stands for highlight, explain, apply, respond. And typically, what that looks like is reading a chapter of Scripture and then highlighting one verse. All right, so this is the one that I'm going to focus on this morning. Uh, This is an act of meditation. So you you highlight that and you you explain it. Who's writing this? What's going on? What are the words that are used here? What, what is the author talking about? And then so you, you just kind of explain it with a couple sentences and then apply it. Now here are four questions for just simple application. Is there a truth to believe? Is there a promise to remember? Is there a command to obey? Or is there a sin to forsake? You're not trying to do all four of those in every verse, but chances are one of those questions will apply to the verse that you're looking at. Is there a truth to believe? Is there a promise to remember? Is there a command to obey? Is there a sin to forsake? And then respond to it. Maybe the response to that verse would be like, I wanna text uh, an encouraging note to a friend that that I know could benefit from it. Maybe the response is prayer. Uh, Maybe the response is forsaking a sin or walking in obedience. But that's a great way to build yourself up in the truth so that you don't fall prey to false doctrine. Now, our moment-by-moment need for God's Word is constant. Now, many of you are uh, familiar with the iconic bridge, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. The colors, you know, this international orange is what it's called. It's beautiful. Now, what I recently learned is that that bridge is constantly being painted. Right. so there, there is a team of 34 people, and their sole job is to constantly paint the Golden Gate Bridge, that iconic orange color. So the moment, it takes about two years. So the moment that they paint the last piece, the next day they go into work and they begin painting right where they started again. They just over and over again. Now, why do they do this? They don't simply do this to you know, make sure that it maintains its iconic color. They do this because the bridge is suspended over the Pacific Ocean, and one of the things that the Pacific Ocean is known for is saltiness, and that salt is constantly seeking to erode the bridge, and if that bridge was not constantly painted again and again, it would eventually begin to break down. It would eventually become unusable, and it would be a danger to every single person that crossed it. And as I considered that and considered the necessity of constantly reading God's word, I was reminded it doesn't matter if you read that verse two years ago. It doesn't matter if you heard that sermon preached a year before, it doesn't matter. We constantly need to paint over our hearts with the words of scripture. We need to paint over every lie that we're tempted to believe. We need to paint again to refresh the truth of God's grace and mercy to those who know Him. We need to paint these promises on our heart afresh. And the work of doing this, this side of heaven, will never be finished until we see the Word who is God face to face. I think I I can't help but also look at this passage and ask the question when it comes to this this idea of falling prey to the commands of people that we see in verse 14, He says, Uh, That they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. The question becomes, can you distinguish between what is just the command of a person and what is true doctrine that is in alignment with God's word? If you're thinking, I I don't really know where to begin. um, I want to just kind of, you know, uh, present a simple tool that we have developed at the Oaks, and it's our statement of faith right? We often walk through it in, in our starting point class and some people almost look at a statement of faith. This, this is me, right? Whenever I was like first looking for churches, when we moved to Louisville, I, I read through it and I was just kind of like, okay, do I agree with this stuff or do I not? Okay. This seems to check out. I'll go here. Right. And then it's like, you never look at it again. But a couple of years ago, if you were here, whenever we revised the Oaks statement of faith, we res- we revised it in a, with a goal in mind. Um, not because we were changing anything that we believed, literally nothing that uh, was written in the statement of faith changed, but we revised it in order to make it more accessible, uh, to make it clearer and to make it a tool for your personal growth and the discipleship of others. So you'll find that the language in our statement of faith is very readable. It's very comprehensive. And then at the end of each of those 12 statements, just short paragraphs, there's like 15 to 20 passages of scripture so that you in your time with the Lord can say, you know what, I I know who the Holy Spirit is, but if somebody said, what are five scriptures to kind of support your belief about who the Holy Spirit is, you're like, I don't really know what I would say. But you can go to that portion on her About Us page and go to the Statement of Faith and say, you know what, I'm just gonna start looking up each of these verses to develop my doctrine of the Holy Spirit, to develop my doctrine of sin, so that I can know that what I believe isn't just coming from what I've heard from somebody else, but it is coming from the words of scripture. Now, then, then people begin to think, well, well, I've got views on a lot of things that maybe aren't even in the statement of faith. So what do I do with that? Um, well, there's a, there's a term that we use called theological triage. Uh, now, what does that mean? Many of you work in the medical field, so you're familiar with the word triage. If two people walk into the emergency room at the same time, and one of them has a sprained ankle and the other one has a bullet wound, uh, who do you treat First? Well, you don't say, well, the guy with the sprained ankle hobbled in here first, so obviously he gets first dibs. No, you say uh, the bullet wound is much more urgent. This is a top tier issue, so we're going to handle that first. Well, theology is the same way. And so you can think about theological triage in kind of four tiers. So tier one are Christian convictions. What does a Christian have to believe to be Christian? These are things like Christ's resurrection was a bodily resurrection. He wasn't just spirit whenever he rose again. Uh, these are things like we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not by works of our hands. Uh, those are Christian convictions. Then there are um, like denominational convictions, right? This is probably determine the church that you go to. Uh, these are issues like infant baptism versus, uh, you know, an immersion adult baptism. These are things like, uh, you know, can females be pastors or not? Things like uh, speaking in tongues. Do people speak in tongues or not? Things like reformed theology. Now, here's what we would say at the Oaks. We recognize that godly Christians that I I value and trust, that I've learned a lot from, have different views on these things. So we don't divide over these issues. But we say it would probably determine the denomination of church that you're a part of. Now, there are people in in our church that would say, you know what, I'm not quite there on this issue. And I would say, that's totally fine. Like as long as you agree not to be divisive over something that is a second tier issue, then that's totally fine. Like we can worship together. Um, You know, third tier issues would be something like church convictions, how often we take communion. Uh, You know, do we have kids ministry where they like go out during our church gathering, or do we keep the families together all the time? Um, We would say that's, that's kind of a church conviction, not really something that people should debate over. And then by the time you get to fourth tier issues, these are just matters of personal conviction. So should you mow your grass on Sunday or not? It's kind of like, well, you know, whatever you want to do, Uh, whatever, whatever your conviction and conscience permits there. Uh, Do you want to keep the bright red carpet in the new church building? Uh, Sorry, it's already gone. (laughs) Um, But, but I, but I feel like while that takes a lot of time and you're kind of like, man, this isn't really like the, I'm in tears. This is such a powerful sermon kind of moment. Like, I think it's helpful for you to have a a tool like that, that you can begin to, to run kind of the, the things that you're reading or the things that you're feeling through to say, you know, is this first here or is this kind of a personal conviction? Because I think it will help you determine the, the weight by which you give to things that you believe. Now, in verse 15, Paul applies a simple principle here. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Here's what he's saying. Uh, To the person that is pure, that has a relationship with God, uh, the way that they keep Jewish holidays and festivals or the dietary restrictions that they observe or they don't observe, it doesn't matter, right? Because if they're pure of heart, they're going to honor the Lord in what they're doing. And those things ultimately are not a determiner of someone's relationship with the Lord. But he says to the person who is not pure, to the person that is defiled and unbelieving, they can they can complete the Oaks reading plan three times in a year, but it won't matter. Why? Because they're defiled. They're doing it to, to puff themselves up or for their own pride. For them, they're, they're, their conscience is defiled. There's, there's nothing that they can do that will ultimately honor God because their lips might praise him, but their heart is far from him. In our modern day context, Paul giving this quote would uh, say something like, you know, Uh, People would say, you shouldn't wear a hat in church or something like that. Well, I mean, we would would say it doesn't matter if you wear a hat in church as long as the posture of your heart is right before God. And then as he talks about the defiled, we'd say, well, it doesn't matter if you, you pray this beautifully eloquent prayer if you're ultimately doing it just to impress other people. And then there are a lot of neutral things, right? Or things that God has given as good gifts, like food, Uh, like entertainment, like social media. And the way that you use those things will either be pure or impure based upon the disposition of your heart. So are you you posting things to, you know, ultimately make other people jealous? Or are you posting things in a way that gives glory to God and praises Him, right? Uh, We look at this dichotomy of the pure and defiled and show it's not necessarily... Always about the action or the gift. It's about the motivation of the heart. Finally, Paul sums up the false teachers in a single statement, saying they profess to know God but deny him by their works. We see this relationship between what is taught or the truth that is held to and ultimately the way that you live. Now, real quickly, because I recognize that I'm out of time, let's look at three facts to strengthen your faith and guard against. False doctrine. Fact one, God is truth. When Paul began this letter, he says God never lies. We can't just say, well, this is just kind of a a philosophical disagreement between what they're teaching about what it means to be saved and what we're teaching. No, ultimately to teach false doctrine is a misrepresentation of the God who gives his word to us, which is why this matters so much. God is truth. He has ultimately made himself known through the person of Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one who comes can come to the Father except through me. So we can personally know the God who is truth. And why does that matter for you this week? Because it means that you can completely trust the God who is truthful. You can completely trust the God who is truthful for today, for your future, that whenever he says that Christ has absorbed every sin that you've committed on the cross that you can indeed say, his mercy is more. Though my my sin is great, though my mercy is more. Though someone might level accusations against you about who you are, you can say, ultimately, I am in Christ. Fact two, your belief determines your behavior. Your belief determines your behavior. We look at this passage and We see that the false teachers taught false truths, and then they are disobedient. They are unfit for any good work. I think this presents a common question as we present this point. Well, if if I'm not saved by my works, then should my works actually matter at all? That's kind of the the picture that Paul is painting in this letter. In Titus 2, seven, he says, be a model of good works. Two fifteen, He says that God has made you a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In 3.8, he says, be careful to devote yourself to good works. In 3.14, he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So then we wonder, well, how can Paul disregard all of the works that the false teachers are trying to heap upon Christians and then say that good works matter so much? Well, to quote the, the Christian leader, Tim Keller who passed away this week that religion says obey to be accepted by God but the gospel says you are accepted through Christ. Now obey. It, it changes our hearts and then that then changes how we live. And, third, uh, and the, the response here is to behave in a way that reveals who you belong to, right? This doesn't doesn't mean that um, things will just be simple and easy, that you'll never want to sin again. No, you still wrestle against the flesh. It doesn't mean that this isn't gonna take effort on your part. Uh, One pastor says, grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. And yet we're able to obey the imperative. This is how you should live because of the indicative. This is who you are. You've been redeemed. The Holy Spirit now lives within you. You are a child of God. Go and live in this way. As 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In fact three, legalism occurs when we lose sight of the gospel. Um, now, big surprise, I have five sub points here. So just check your Wednesday weekly email. That's where that will go. We spent a lot of time talking about what the gospel is not, what false doctrine is. And so let me close with these words from Titus 3, 4 through 7. How how can we, those who have, have fallen prey to believing the wrong things about who God is and ourselves, who are often unsure, how could we possibly be saved? It is not by the work of our hands, but by the work of Christ. That when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration. How are we made pure? By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We look not to ourselves or to the work of our own hands, but we look to the nail-scarred hands of our Savior who appeared merciful, gracious, and willing to save when we were dead in our sin. Let's pray.